Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Ring. I'm your host, Roger Baker. The Korean Peninsula sits at the crossroads of continental and maritime Asia, seen as various times as a bridgehead onto the continent or a dagger pointing at the heart of Japan. Korea's history has been shaped by its location and by competition between larger powers around it. This has driven numerous policy responses, both from the old unified Korea and the modern divided Korea, ranging from isolationism to balancing big powers to more independent regional engagement. Under the current Yoon administration, South Korea appears to be once again undergoing a shift in strategic policy, healing long-standing rifts with Japan, strengthening defense cooperation with the United States, and pursuing a more activist regional policy. Joining me today to discuss South Korea's evolving responses to its geographical position and shifting geopolitical balances is Dr. Jaehan Park from the Edwin O. Reichauer Center for East Asia Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, or SICE. Jaehan has taught at SICE and at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University and served in the Republic of Korea Army as an officer. Currently, he's working on a book project tentatively entitled The Geographical Pivot of Grand Strategy, which examines how rising powers determine their geopolitical orientation. Thanks for joining me today, Jayhan. Thanks for having me, Roger. So let, let's start um, where we just finished up right there on the idea of uh, geopolitics and geopolitical orientation. How do you, um, one, how do you define geopolitics? Because there's a lot of debate that always goes over, uh, goes around that. And two, how do you see geopolitics as a tool to understand the forces that may shape the options for for leaders of countries or for countries? And, and how does that impact, you know, the, how do you look at those deeper patterns versus, for example, the individuals uh, and the individual actors? Uh, that's an excellent question, Roger, uh, and, and thanks for having me again. So um, people use geopolitics to, to mean all sorts of things. And I, as an academic, I try to be as open-minded as possible, when it, but, but when it comes to definition, I am more of an originalist, or I try to stick to the original definition thereof. So the way I see geopolitics is that it's the, uh, the influence of how geography affects uh, international affairs or the study thereof. So uh, in my view, there are a couple of uh, uh, characteristics of geopolitical analysis. One is that it focuses on the structure as opposed to the agent, ontologically speaking. So we, we do not look at what policymakers said, uh, what issue to a particular um, foreign, for foreign counterpart on what day. We don't, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't focus on that aspect. And, and that, as, that particular aspect is best exemplified by Nicholas Speakman's comments that ministers come and go, but, and dictators even die, but mountains uh, stand uh, the same as, as always. So, so that's the first point. Second point is that geography is uneven and unequal. What do I mean by that? If you look at the, uh, the, the, the landscape, uh, natural resources are distributed unevenly across the world. Um, because of the terrain and, and lines of communication, uh, they, they form asymmetrically. So some places are more important than others. So geographic priorities uh, are a very important part of a geopolitical analysis. The final point is that ge the value or strategic value of particular places changes over time. 
So uh, that, that is when human factors come in. Uh, there are technology, uh, demography, socioeconomic structure or, or culture even in, in the long run. And, and, and Stratfor and you have been doing a terrific job at that. So those are some of the, some of the basic characteristics of geopolitical analysis. And um, that's, that's uh, so geopolitics is much more interested in medium to long term analysis as opposed to short term day to day operations. Right. So it has that it has that contextual element, you know, and on your second point, uh, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a big fan of pointing out um, Mackinder's sort of obvious but profound statement that there is uh, in nature no such thing as equality of opportunity for the nations. Right. That that geography is unfair and that's just a fact. Um, and that has an impact, particularly over time, on the way in which we see regional localized um, responses, cultural responses, that over time that geography starts to shape uh, the way in which people perceive. And then as you point out, technology changes the relative value uh, of geography. And technology, I would say, is how, how people interact with geography is through technology. Definitely. So, so you're looking at this obviously more from that broad strategic point of view. So let's let's dig into history, um, you know, and we'll, we'll talk we'll talk about the Korean Peninsula today. Obviously, today Korea is a divided nation. It's two countries. Um, in history, it's been one. It's been three. It's been four. It's been a, a wide variety depending upon how you want to look at it. Um, its borders have expanded and contracted. But let let's go back through history. How does um, Korea's geographic position shape its geopolitical position? So, uh, as you suggested in the opening remarks, Korea sits at the uh, center of, or rather sort of pivot, pivotal location between maritime and continental Asia. And uh, for, from, from the geostrategic vantage point, uh, at least in the modern times, there are two major uh, land and sea powers in the region, which are China and Japan respectively. So Korea is really sitting at the center of their strategic competition. So in a nutshell, Korea is to China what Poland was to the Soviet Union, and Korea is to Japan what the low countries were to Great Britain. So that's just sort of a you know, punchline that I have. Uh, so let us go back to the history. Um, of course, uh, there was a 7th century war in which uh, Tang Dynasty and Shila uh, were pitted against Baekje and Japan. Uh, but that's a long time ago, so we don't, we don't talk about that too much. But even, even, if in, uh, even in 16th century, there was uh, something called the Imjin War, uh, which lasted from 1592 to 1598, where Joseon Dynasty allied with uh, Ming Dynasty and then uh, and, and warded off the invasion from Japan. Uh, if, you, if you sort of like, you know, move, move forward to the 19th century, uh, obviously there were the Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War, where continental and maritime powers basically pitted against each other. And then there was the Korean War in the, in the 20th century, where the United States and South Korea fought a war against North Korea, allied with um, China and Soviet Union. So this is a broad sort of like a this, uh, landscape of East Asia, and and sort of these changing power relations are converging on the Korean pen Peninsula, and that has been the case uh, throughout history, uh, notwithstanding the changing nature of co specific conflicts. So the geographic location remains constant, and even with the development of nuclear weapons and, and changing sort of a post-Cold War structure, Korea still remains a, an epicenter of, of geopolitical tension in, in, in the region, and that's, that's uh, basically how I see it. Well, and if we want to th th throw in one more historical example, we can go in the opposite direction, and you can see 
the Mongols using Korea as a springboard for their attempted invasion of Japan. So that that sense of utilizing Korea as the crossroads between the two geographies um, see, seems to go in both directions. It doesn't just come from the maritime onto the continent. Right. Exa exactly. And, and as as you as you open up this as podcast. Uh, German military advisor Jacob Mackel said to the Japanese counterpart that Korea is the dagger pointed at the heart of Japan. But also, uh, Chinese statesman Li Hongzhang said, you know, Korea and, and China, their relationship is much like uh, lips and teeth. So that's uh, that's that sort of those uh, succinct uh, statements summarize Korea's position vis-a-vis -vis Japan and China. Yeah, the, the lips and teeth, I know the, the Chinese love to use that with North Korea these days, but everybody forgets the other half of that phrase, which is um, when the lips are gone, the teeth get cold. Uh, and and <laughs> yeah, in, exactly. in, in the end, what it talks about is the idea that from, in some ways, from both the maritime space and the continental space, Korea is the buffer between them. It's not only the bridge between them, but it serves as the buffer between them. And, and we saw that in the Korean War, where the Chinese intervention only happens when the United States pushes too far north. And they want to keep that, that buffer space between the outside powers and, and northern China. Right. Um, as, we, as we think about that, then, you know, these are, these are big, broad swaths. And we're not really these days talking about Japan invading China by rolling over Korea, and we're not talking about the Chinese using Korea as a springboard to invade Japan. But how do those that that how does that sort of positioning still shape the present dynamic on Korea, particularly when we now have a divided peninsula? Right. So um, at least in the post Cold War structure, a lot of uh, South Korean policymakers and academics have been uh, have been sort of infatuated, well, I, sh I should say, have been sort of convinced by this idea that Korea, Korea's prosperity depends on its trade with China and its, its security depends on its alliance with the United States. In Korean, we call it Ami um, And that has a deeper root, uh, in, my, in my view, uh, which goes back to the end of the Cold War period, where uh, President Roh Tae-woo came up with this idea of a North Politik or Pukbang Jongchek in Korean where they believe that you know, having a nice relationship with the uh, uh, communist countries would help them achieve unification, which, by the way, is mandated by the Korean constitution. So that has been the sort of a kind of a consensus, bipartisan consensus. Obviously, there were some uh, differences in terms of methods and how much uh, credence they give to uh, respective parties, give to uh, the importance of alliance or versus uh, national, national rapprochement. But, but that has been the sort of a consensus ever since the end of the Cold War. Now I think it is breaking uh, for a number of reasons that are structural. Obviously, President Yoon has his own views and, and you know, there are conservative progressive shift back and forth, but there are much more deeper structural issues. So first is that uh, now Korean population has grown increasingly hostile to China. And that has, you know, that has something to do with um, China's increasing military capabilities, but recent polls suggest that it's more, it has more to do with environmental and cultural and technological factors. For example, uh, South Korea has been suffering a lot of air pollution, and uh, th that has been attributed, for better or for worse, to uh, Chinese uh, man manufacturing sector. Uh, second part is that there was a cultural appropriation issue during the Beijing Olympic where uh, Beijing, where, where Chinese authorities basically uh, deemed a Korean traditional costume, hanbok, as, 
as one of its own, and that sort of uh, uh, created a massive backlash on, on both sides of the aisle in, in, in South Korean politics. And finally, technology. Um, there was a uh, National Intelligence Service report saying that you know the, the amount of uh, Chinese technological thefts uh, is staggering. I forgot the exact numbers, but but that that sort of caused South Korean jobs and economic edge. So these kind of things are probably much more important to the minds of especially younger South Koreans than China's uh, People's Liberation Army's uh, increasing capabilities. So these things are creating some of the uh, structural changes. Second part is related, uh, which is that uh, South Korean demography is declining. And if you look at, if you look at the, uh, the, the, the numbers, um, I think in the past four to five years, we have decreased the number of soldiers by almost 110,000. And that's a significant number because we used to have, we used to say that we have 600,000 soldiers or manpower within the, within our armed forces. So it's a staggering number. And what, what do we compensate for that loss? Uh, we have to invest in naval and air capabilities, capital intensive capabilities, which would almost certainly uh, elicit backlash from the, from, from the Chinese side. And finally, North Korean nuclear program, we can, we can basically now deem North Korea as a de facto nuclear power. And that has, uh, sort of uh, urged uh, some South Korean uh, strategists to change their thinking about how the war would be conducted on the Korean Peninsula. So there are, you know, a lot of articles being written about how to do, so how to sort of prevent nuclear wars and have a more limited uh, conflict as opposed to the traditional war plans that 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 basically assume we are, we're going to have like a Korean War style uh, massive uh, 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 conventional war. So these factors are combined to create an incentive for South Korea to shift away from its, its traditional uh, number one economic partner, which is China. So these are some of the trends uh, that might have a lot medium to long-term consequences for, for South Korean geo, geostrategic position. Well, if we think about that, that China dynamic there, um, for the longest time, it, it has been the norm throughout the, the Asia Pacific or the broader Indo-Pacific to have the security relationship with the United States, the economic relationship with China. This has been since China sort of, uh, you know, really the late 90s um, and, and especially the, the, the first, you know, 15 years of the 2000s where China's economy grew massively. Um, U.S.-China strategic competition wasn't framed in the way that it is today. Uh, and even as you saw the United States move back and forth to try to perhaps focus on China as its future strategic competitor, it would then back off uh, from that because something else happened, like 9-11. Um, or there was the belief that by ch including China in the international economic architecture, you could change Chinese politics. And really, the last five years, that whole idea has gone out the window. Um, in the United States, there's been a massive shift in the way in which the US perceives China on the whole, and therefore in the actions the United States is taking. Is there less room for countries in the Asia Pacific uh, theater to be able to walk that balance between economic relations with China and strategic, you know, security relations with the United States, particularly when this idea of high technology, which is so important for the South Korean economy, crosses over between economics and strategic security? Um, so that's more of a question concerning U.S. politics and broader U.S.-China relations. Um, so the way I see it is that for the next five years, the U.S.-China relations are not going to get 
better. And there are a couple of reasons. Uh, obviously, uh, in 2024, we have an election here in the United States, but also we have uh, elections in, in Taiwan and I think Japan as well. So um, depending on how the results, depending on the outcome, China will uh, have recalibration of its, its posture and China has its own sort of uh, Communist Party, Party uh, meeting in 2027 when Xi Jinping's uh, uh, additional term might be uh, uh, determined. So it, in between 2024 and 2027, uh, Asia as a whole will be in, in a very uh, precarious condition. So I don't, I don't see any sort of improvements in between 2024 and 2027. Now the question for the policymakers is how to sort of navigate this 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 uh, uh, dangerous waters, right? Um, traditionally, South Korea as well as Japan have outsourced their defense to the United States, and they access market in, in, in access U.S. market in return. I think they have to rethink about this formula. They will have to make much more concessions on the security front by providing more and paying more money in return for some economic concessions or exemptions from some trade re regulations if they want that. And uh, alternatives would be to have more strategic autonomy and delinking from, US, delinking from US alliance structure, which I think is not a wise idea uh, in, my, in my personal view. So these are kind of two trade-offs uh, that, I, that I see moving forward. Uh, from now to let's say 2027. So, so as we look at you know the 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 choices that Korea has and the way they have to adapt, it's not merely about their immediate neighborhood. There's this broader uh, global context. Um, let's talk briefly then about this adjustment of Korean relations with Japan. Um, you know, from the U.S. perspective, it's always been a question: Why can't Korea just get over history? The Europeans did, and they made NATO. Um, the, the, we have this adjustment and we're moving from what has been a series of bilateral relations between the United States and South Korea, the United States and Japan, and a fuzzy one between Japan and South Korea to what may be a true trilateral relationship um, in Northeast Asia. Uh, how do you see this evolution of uh, Korean-Japanese relationships? Is this a, something that is more about short-term politics or is this about those structural changes in the whole region that are that are facilitating this or may make this um, uh, rapprochement uh, more lasting than ones that we've seen in the past? Um, so Korea-Japan relations, uh, it, it is always a very tricky topic for any observers of Korea or Japan to talk about. Um, at least in the media reports uh, or, or you know, day-to-day -day political analysis, people attribute much to the uh, historical issues. The way I see it is that, uh, and then I'm a geopolitical analyst, so I'm obviously biased to some extent, but the way I see it is that there are deeper structural issues that underlie uh, some of the day-to-day -day political activities. For example, um, if you go back to the history, Around, around the time of the Imjin War, like before and after Korea's relationship with uh, Japan changed, but also as, 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 as the uh, time passed by, uh, they, they developed different views of Japan and, 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 and China as well. So their historical relationship 
uh, depended on the geostrategic geo context, if you will. And, and in more uh, contemporary period, uh, President Park Chung he thought that we have to have a better relations with Japan um, in, in order to survive and develop our nation, right? So th th there was that. And, and, and then sort of uh, there was a line of or a series of diplomatic negotiations in, in, in much more um, uh, immediate past. So this is kind of a long-winded way of saying, I don't really have a good answer, but the way I see it is that all the ingredients are there. And if these catalytic uh, issues are resolved in an amicable manner, I think there will be much more um, fundamental shifts in Korea-Japan relations. Uh, because if you look at the poll, actually the younger population see uh, China as a bigger threat than Japan, un unlike some of the older generations. Uh, who may or may not have uh, direct experience of Japanese colonial rules. So, um, again, there are some structural elements, but that th these structural elements have been sort of held by more immediate catalytic uh, and, and politically sensitive issues uh, that, that have been sort of like uh, holding on these structural issues to materialize, but once these issues are resolved, which obviously obviously is a hard thing, uh, then Korea and Japan will have like a fundamental reconfiguration of relationship. Yeah, I think one of the one of the challenges is, of course, uh, history is constantly reinterpreted, um, and and therefore one can never be quote over history. Uh, but there are, as you note, these changes in the regional dynamic that may at least for for several years create a a. Uh, uh, common direction um, that eases this up. And then, of course, there are the questions of demographic change in South Korea, demographic change in Japan that plays this out. So let's let's think about this going forward, because as we look at um, Korea's place, uh, traditionally it's looked at as, you know, Korea's primary focus is the Korean Peninsula. And that's been uh, almost one of the critiques from the United States for several years, particularly in the post-Cold War world, um, why isn't Korea more involved in the region uh, in a collaborative way with the United States, with the Japanese, now with the Australians, the Indians, everyone else? Korea does some things around there, but it's mostly focused, particularly from a security point of view, on the Korean Peninsula, and that may be changing. How do we see the, the evolution as we go forward, right? Everyone's worried about a potential Taiwan scenario. What role for Korea in that? Um, we're looking at the expansion of North Korea's nuclear capabilities, China's nuclear capabilities. Um, how do we see the evolution of, of Korea in that nuclear space, as well as in this sort of volatile strategic space of the, the Indo-Pacific? Uh, so the nuclear issue and uh, the cross-strait crisis are two hot-button issues that Korean policymakers now increasingly uh, attentive to it, and they, they, they try to figure out the formula. Um, these are related, but these are also two different issues, so I will talk about them uh, separately. Uh, nuclearization, there are calls for uh, different ways of having nuclear, nuclear capabilities, uh, nuclear sharing in a, in a NATO style, uh, redeployment of U.S. tactical nuclear weapons, or you know, development of its own nuclear capabilities. Um, and, and, and this topic was 
uh, hotly debated during the conservative primary uh, in 2021 before the election in South Korea. And the way I see it is that, again, uh, we got to be careful with a historical analogy, but uh, if you look back into the Cold War history, uh, when President Eisenhower tried to delegate as much responsibility to the European allies, and that involved sort of like a possibility of Germans having a, having a, having sort of a, a finger on the nuclear buttons, buttons that, that the NATO had, and that sort of uh, freaked the Soviet Union out, and, but, and thereby resulting in the Berlin crisis and the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s. So what would happen if South Korea goes nuclear? Uh, then Japan would definitely arm itself or at least one, wants to arm itself with the nuclear capabilities, and that would have like ripple effects across the region because Beijing would not tolerate it. So that is the way I see it, and, and for now, it's it's better for South Korea to stick to the U.S. nuclear extended extended nuclear deterrence. Um, second part, the Taiwan issue. Um, a lot of policymakers and academics have been trying to separate ourselves from the broader. U.S.-China competition, and in particular, China, Taiwan issue. But if you look back into some of the previous cases, Korea and Taiwan are closely related. The Korean War, the the Mao was divided. But you know, when President Truman sent the Seventh Fleet to the Taiwan Strait, he increasingly saw the danger of U.S. containment. And 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 some some geostrategists in Mao's inner circle convinced the entire sort of like collective leadership with 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 this logic. And then even before that, uh, the Sino-Japanese War uh, broke out over the Korean Peninsula, but Japan ended up uh, occupying Taiwan. So these two geographic locations are intimately related because they sit at the forefront of Sino-Japanese uh, geostrategic competition. So Korea will have to pay more attention. Now, what specifically can Seoul do at this point is unclear because there is virtually no infrastructure. Uh, they have some business uh, uh, relations and they have some uh, business councils that, that, that do a, sort of a Trek 1.5 or 2 dialogues. Uh, but there's no security uh, dialogue infrastructure between, between Taipei and Seoul, so there's that. And realistically speaking, Korea is much more concerned with its own security because it faces North Korea in, 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 the, in, in the north. So it will be very difficult for Korea to commit to commit any substantial military assets to the Taiwan contingency, what they can do uh, are probably more on the economic and, and logistical fronts. And um, they are, I think, increasingly trying to identify these, uh, these uh, avenues of cooperation. Right, of course, with their relationship with the United States, if the United States is involved in a Taiwan crisis, um, by default, Korea is either involved um, uh, or there's going to be some particularly significant rift with the United States uh, if the Koreans determine that none of their territory can be utilized for rear-end support or supplies, or that none of the force structure in Korea can be utilized um, for, for theater-wide concerns rather than peninsular-wide concerns. And I think that that's, that's when we get, you know, if we ever wanted to play in the tactical space, that gets down to this really difficult tactical question between the U.S. and the, the South Koreans over what is the role of the U.S. forces in Korea? Are they still necessary in that size if they're only isolated for operations in the Korean Peninsula? And how does that shape the way in which the United States may be demanding more of a regional role from a military security perspective by South Korea uh, in return for that or 
an expectation that over time there's a continual slow steady drawdown of forces without trying to show that you know there's no pressure on North Korea but those force structures are not necessarily best positioned for the geostrategic pattern in the Indo-Pacific today and I think let, let, let's turn away from hard power for a minute let's go to soft power um, which I know some people love and some people hate South Korea of course has has been able to extend the so-called soft power pretty substantially everybody watches k-dramas now everybody listens to k-pop um, and you can have uh, ramen and kimbap almost anywhere and therefore you have this perception of soft power is Korea able or willing to find ways to take that soft power and convert it into more influence regionally or is that soft power mostly just something that the 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 uh, the Korean money and business follows and it hasn't added to strategic um, engagement no I've traditionally been I have traditionally been rather skeptical about how this soft power thing can and translate into material uh, by that I mean security and economic benefits but there can be some um, possible trickle-down effects from this so obviously uh, k-culture or k-pop or k-drama have been very lucrative if you will and 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 you know for a country like Korea which has to sustain a certain level of growth because it is located in a, in a dangerous neighborhood, uh, it's, a, it's a good thing, generally speaking. And second part is that if it becomes much more, much better known to the uh, broader world and, you know, uh, if, if its culture gains currency among important allies or important partners, it may have, uh, you know, particular and very time and occasion-bound uh, diplomatic effects. I can't really think of any particular uh, historical examples off the top of my head, but I can't also, I, I cannot deny the fact that these things matter. So these are sort of, uh, you know, basic preliminary ways in which K-pop, K-culture, Korean soft power more, more generally can affect its uh, uh, role in, in the world and in, in, in the region. And I guess, um, you know, we're, we're pushing time here, so I do want to get close to wrapping up and we'll, we'll have to come back and talk a lot more about some of these issues. But I think the one thing we haven't sort of mentioned in here uh, is Russia. Um, and obviously near the end of the Cold War and right at the end of the Cold War, the South Koreans did some major outreaches to the, the, the Soviet Union and then Russia. Um, as part of that, that, that Nordpolitik and as part of their ability to try to um, end run around North Korea at the time. Um, the, the South Koreans have had economic connectivity to Russia. I know they've had a lot of Arctic research uh, that's been thrown off balance by the Ukraine conflict. Um, we've just seen a deal, uh, you know, earlier this month between the uh, Chinese and the Russians that are allowing the Chinese now to use Vladivostok as a port for intra-Chinese trade. So the, the, the Chinese end running through Russia around the Korean peninsula. Um, as we think about these big global changes, uh, how is South Korea's geostrategic position impacted by uh, what's happening in Russia and how may the Koreans be uh, adapting or adjusting to that change? 
So Russian influence in the Far East, uh, which is the old name for East Asia, has waxed and waned depending on the circumstances. And I think Dostoevsky at one point said Russia is a slave in the West and the master in the East, so it has to go to the West. No, excuse me, East. Um, and, and there were more recent past, as you've mentioned, you know, right, where Russia played a prominent role in, in Korean affairs. But I think for now, uh, it is a junior partner to China in the uh, sort of emerging Sino-Russian strategic alignment, and it will have very limited say in the Korean affairs. Um, Korea may have some, some uh, business, uh, may, may seek some business opportunities, and as, as you said, Arctic uh, scientific exploration and trade routes and that, and that those issues require Russian cooperation. But I see Russia as a relatively less important partner or counterpart uh, for Korea in the emerging uh, era of, of geostrategic competition in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, may, you know, I guess the Koreans benefit by being able to sell lots of weapon systems to NATO countries. Um, right now, true. Uh, that's that's a net benefit, and I, and I think the thing to keep an eye on is just how much does the Russian Chinese maritime and and aerial uh, patrols develop in the North Pacific. We do see the Russians and Chinese carry out strategic air patrols um, that fly over and past uh, Tokto, which creates some friction between Korea and Japan. Um, we've seen some expanding Chinese and Russian. Uh, naval exercises in the region. If we see the Chinese start operating on both sides of the Korean Peninsula, that that change in Russia's position, it may not directly impact Korea-Russia relations, but it can change the strategic dynamic within the region that Korea is going to have to be adapting and adjusting to. Right. But before we uh, wrap it up, just want to mention one thing, just piggybacking on what you've just said. It seems to me that North Korea is trying to capitalize on the uh, U.S.-China competition by bandwagoning with China and Russia writ large. So that is one thing. And, and since this is a geopolitics podcast, it's appropriate to mention uh, Helfer McKinder's famous article in 1904, which is based upon his lecture, The Geographical Pivot of History, where, he's, where his, his primary concern was Germano-Russian coalition. But he also ended with a note that China, organized by Japan, can pose a menace to the uh, sort of Anglophone world that's at the time being looking at the future. So um, if Sino-Russian sort of alignment strengthens, it is going to pose a challenge to the broader sort of U.S. and U.S. allies or, or, or the West, uh, the putative West. So that is going to be, uh, that is going to have uh, some strategic, uh, strategic um, consequences for Seoul as well. Certainly. And that, you know, again, we, we're going to have to cut time, but that would take us into the discussion of is BRI building Mackinder's World Island? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and how do we think about all of that? So, uh, Jayan, I really want to thank you for joining me today. Absolute pleasure. All right. And thank you for listening. We've been talking with Dr. Jayan Park from the Edwin O. Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. If you'd like to keep up with the latest discussions and assessments of shifting geopolitical balances, visit RainNetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Rain. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>